Tonight's reading from the Old Testament is from Psalm 1 and can be found on page 2 of your bulletins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon. My name is Kevin Offner. I'm one of the elders here, and as I look around, I realize I probably know about half of you. I don't know half of their half. Um, I wanted to give you a really brief history of our church. It can be really quick, but um, just so you know, this church has been here since 2001. Well, actually, 2003 is when we officially started. But Tim Keller came to a church out um, in uh, the suburbs, and he spoke on how God has a love for the city. And he said, we need to see a church planted in D.C. And in 2001, a group of us started to meet, about 30 of us regularly. And we prayed for like two years until God finally brought Glenn. And I need to tell you, during those two years, there were some candidates that were pretty scary. I mean, they were not good candidates. And uh, the, the Lord protected us from them. So I think Glenn was candidate number four, but he was great. He was great. And we knew when Glenn came that he was our, our person. So uh, I'm curious, how many of you were back at the very first uh, back in 2001 through 2003. Can you just raise your hands real quick? There's Joe, Amy, over here, okay. And Tom from uh, Chicago is visiting us, and he was here at the very beginning, 2001. So welcome, Tom. Okay. Well, um, I, I'd like to, to pray as we get started, and um, just to say that we're looking at the series in the Psalms, and I chose Psalm 1. Uh, it's short, it's pithy, it, it has a, packs a punch, and I'm just looking forward to sharing God's Word with us. So let's pray together again, okay? Lord, thanks so much for being present with us, and thank you that you promised that your word will never return to you void. So we pray that you would have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've had the psalm read, and I'll give you my little outline here. And one of the things I need to tell you that I hope this won't be too distracting, but you may find me occasionally going like this. I don't have, bif- I don't have bifocals yet, so I need to read my notes. So. Professional preachers know how to do this, but I don't, okay? I'm not, a, I'm not an experienced this. Um, what I want to do is look at two things, basically, and the first point is going to be my main point, okay? And that is that one thing the psalm tells us is that God wants his people to be radically intentional in seeking after him. Radically intentional in following after him. And then secondly, there are consequences for those who do follow him and for those who don't. We'll be mainly looking at that first point. So what does it mean that, God, um, that God's people are to radically and intentionally follow him? Well, it's in what we do do and what we don't do that the scripture talks about. So first of all, what we don't do. So verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the very first thing it talks about is a negative. So first of all, it says we don't walk in the counsel of, of the wicked. So there I think it's talking about the way we think, our, our thoughts, the way we, we move forward in the, our thinking. And then it talks about we don't stand in the way of sinners. I think there it's talking more about behavior, the way, a certain direction of going. 
And then we don't sit in the seat of scoffers. And there, I think, it's talking about our identity, our, our belonging. And so there's kind of a progression here. We're, we're not to be thinking as, as the world thinks. We're not to be um, acting the way the world thinks. And then we're not to see ourselves as belonging to the world. Now, before I go on, I, something that's really important here is there is this sort of us-them contrast that's being made here. Um, we versus them and the, the those who follow God are blessed versus the ungodly, the, the, the uh, those who are wicked. Now, is it really that cut and dry? I think a lot of us have a hard time with that. It's, it's seen throughout Scripture. There's very much a we and a, and a us and a them that we see in Scripture. So how are we supposed to understand that? And a couple of things I think need to be uh, by way of introduction here. First of all, um, Scripture comes to us often, truths, in, in couplets. There's a kind of on the one hand and on the other hand. And sometimes one Scripture will just focus on one of those two sides of a couplet. So for instance, you know, Jesus is fully God and Jesus is fully man. And you might be reading a Scripture that just talks about his, his deity. And you're really getting into that. And you're saying, well, well, wait a minute, but he's also fully man. That passage doesn't talk about that, but it's true. Or God is a God of justice and God is a God of mercy. Or we're supposed to be engaged in evangelism and also social action. And so there's often truths that come to us that need to be put together. So I think that the couple here is, right now we're looking at, for this next 30 minutes, on the contrast between believers and non-believers. But you could also make the case in Scripture that believers and non-believers have very much in common. Okay, that's true too. For instance, just because of our creation, we're all created in the image of God. So every non-Christian and every Christian shares humanity in common, right? So um, if we watch a Hollywood movie conducted by a total secularist, and um, we can still come away with learning things about humanity because we share the image of God. So, so it's not like we can't learn from non-Christians. There's a, a commonality that we have. Also because of our sinfulness. Um, Non-Christians and Christians share, we're sinful. We, uh, so anytime we hear about somebody out in the world doing some terrible thing, as a Christian we just say, boy, there but the grace of God go I. I mean, I'm very capable of that too because I share a sinful nature. So there's a lot we could say about how Christians and those who are not Christians have a lot in common. But just so I'm, I want to say that right off the start, knowing that that's true. But what we're looking at here is the contrast. So Christians are like this, or God's people are like this, and those who are not God's people are like that. So that's the first thing to say by introduction. Uh, the second thing is, um, why is it that there's this big distinction between followers of God and those who are not followers of God? It's not so much that we gird up our loins and say, I'm going to be committed, I'm going to be better than other people, and we're better, we are a race that is better than this other race. It's not like that at all. Um, rather, the reason that there's this distinction is not because of us, but because of God. God is the one that took the initiative in separating people out. If you remember Genesis chapter 12, God appears to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a nation, a, a land. I'm going to uh, give you people as part of your, uh, your, your solidarity with, with a nation. And I'm going to do this not because I see something in you that's better than other people. I'm just going to love you because I love you. There's no reason given. He just chooses Abraham. And then all of God's people are in the loins of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
You look in the, in the book of Exodus, for three or four hundred years, Israel is captive. And um, God has a special concern for his people. And he delivers them from the house of bondage, from the Egyptians. And he gives them redemption through, through the Red Sea. And then all through the Old Testament, God has a special relationship with his people. He gives them his laws and he sacrifices. Uh, if you think about like the eating laws, every single day a Jewish person would eat, he would be reminded that, oh, I, I eat clean food and not unclean food. And why is that? Well, I'm set apart. I belong to the Lord. I'm following Yahweh. So there would be reminders constantly of them being set apart to him. We see this in the New Testament too. Like God, Jesus had a concern for his people. And in John chapter 17, in his high priestly prayer, he says, you know, Lord, I, those who you gave to me, I have, I have loved and I have cared. And now I'm going to you. Take care of them. I pray for them. I don't pray for the whole world. I pray for these people that you've given to me. So there's this distinction that's made. But it's not us. It's God that does it. So God is the one who redeemed us. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who sanctifies us. God's the one who gives us his Holy Spirit. God is the one who puts Jesus inside of us, as it were. And so what he's called, what holiness really is, is our saying, uh, I want to be who I already am. I am this person chosen by God. I want to live like that. I want to be loyal and faithful to the God who's called me. It's not looking at non-Christians and looking at them as terrible people. It's saying, I just want to be faithful to my Heavenly Father. That's what my goal is. So I think what it's saying here, this first part, is we're supposed to observe the way the world lives and works and just say, you know, that's not the way that I want to run my life. I, I want to be careful not to get sucked into the orbit of the way that that, that kind of life goes. And again, I think just a distinction needs to be made. It's not saying that non-Christians all live bad lives, or that when it says he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, does that mean a Christian can never learn anything from a non-Christian? I don't think it means that. But I think it means that the general overall movement of of a person who's outside of Christ, their life, is one which does not have Christ at the center And so their values and attitudes and their whole worldview is going to be shaped in a different way from the Christian. So the Christian is going to observe that and just say, you know, that's not the kind of way that I, I, overall, that I want to go. I can learn some things, but that's not the general trajectory of my life. I want to notice that, the way attitudes and life is gone, and I want to not go that way. Um, So I think a lot of times we'll we'll look at non-Christians and we'll... Those who are Christians, look at nine, and we'll be envious, and but we'll realize that that, that when you think about uh, one one thing, I thought about sometime is if I woke up tomorrow morning and I did not believe in God at all, and Jesus was not real, all the spiritual things were just not not true. I just woke up, all I had was my five senses. It's going to live for eighty years, hopefully. <laughs> I'm already getting close, ninety years, ninety years, and uh, <laughs> and um, you know. How would I live my life? How would I put my life together? Well, I mean, I'd want safety. I'd want security. I'd want pleasure. Um, I would kind of look inward, what's going to bring me happiness, and I would do that. I would, I would have friendships. I would care for people. But it would all be through kind of the lens of, of me, through self. I would certainly not love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. That wouldn't be the way I was directed. So I think we, we're, we're supposed to pay attention to the way that the, quote, the world lives its life and say, I'm not going to let myself get sucked in by those values. 
But then secondly, there's something positive here. It says don't just avoid that, but uh, do something positive. If you look at verse 2, he says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. First of all, he delights in God's word. And sometimes it really strikes me that when David says he delights in God's law, he's referring to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. I don't know if you've ever really studied those first five books. Um, it's not something you easily delight in. Um, I, uh, I'm reading this thing that takes me through the Bible uh, four years, through the whole Bible in four years, and it jumps me around. And there for a while I was looking at Leviticus, and I spent every morning for three weeks studying a chapter of Leviticus. And I mean, I'd wake up in the morning, oh gosh, another chapter of Leviticus, great. You know? and, so, and it just wasn't a lot of joy. And, but I think I was not seeing the big picture as David was. David was stepping back. He was seeing that all the scripture is God's covenant with us. It's God's way of caring and promises for his people. And uh, for us, it's not just those first five books, but it's all of scripture. But the, the issue is, do we delight in God's word? Not just, I'm not going to go the way the world goes, but instead, I'm going to choose to go the way God does because I delight in it. And I think a lot of us, we, we do things because we know it's the right thing to do, but we don't have a lot of joy in doing it. I remember talking with, we had a group of Christians who were meeting with, with several who were not Christians in a room. We were talking about predestination and free will, that whole discussion. Anybody ever had those discussions? Okay. And uh, it went on and on and on. And then at the end of the day, people kind of left and a few of us were standing around. And one of the guys just said, you know, predestination is in the Bible. It's true, but I don't like it. And I just wish it wasn't there. And I just, ah, uh, I just wish I didn't have to believe, you know. And he, he clearly was not delighting in God's word. And I have to say, over time, I really have come to see why the doctrine of predestination is actually a very good, comforting thing for Christians. So I am delighting in that. But you think about anything that's true of Christianity. We shouldn't just hold it because it's true, grudgingly, but because that's where life is found. We delight in it. All of God's commands have a reason. They, they make us more human. They make us more like him. And we should delight in going the way of God. So, so delighting is an important part. But then he says, I delight, uh, he's like, uh, his lies in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now that word meditate is a word that's used often in the Old Testament, and it really means reflecting, thinking through, letting it become part of you. Uh, an image is used sometimes of a cow chewing its cud. You just kind of choose it, choose it. It looks like it's swallowed and, oh, up it comes again. Uh, don't do that with your food, but, but just, you know, that's what cow does. And, and so there's something about letting the Scripture absorb into you, becoming a part of you. The English Puritans used to talk about the, the Bible just getting into your bloodstream because it was so much a part of you and of your nervous system. So it, it's you're, you're thinking God's thoughts after him. You're... It's becoming part of who you are. So you're not just looking at the way the world lives their life and saying, I'm, I don't think I want to go that way, but you're absorbed with what God's values are, and we're wanting to go that way instead. Um, I know that for me, uh, memorizing Scripture is sometimes a helpful way of doing that. I remember when I was growing up in our family, my dad had us read and, and memorize chunks of Scripture together. And one of them was Psalm 139. I was like 12 years old when I, I memorized it. And to this day, I mean, I won't quote to you right now, but I think I have it perfectly quoted. I mean, it was stuck in my head for 30, 40 years. And when you memorize Scripture and it's a part of you, it's not just a matter of reading off rote verses, but it's getting into your thinking so that you can kind of 
think about the world through God's lens. Remember one time at the CG here at Grace, we were studying Philippians, and there was a part of chapter 2 that I just didn't quite get. And um, we were in the, the CG, and we talked about it, and somebody said something that didn't quite resonate with me. I was trying to figure it out. And I, throughout the week, I, I said, I'm going to memorize those five verses to kind of get, work them through as chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I kept working it through, and then about two days later, I was having a conversation with somebody about something, and something just clicked about that passage because of something they said. And so, I, oh, you know, I kind of interrupted them. Oh, I, I see something now. What are you talking about? Well, Philippians 2 now makes sense. But, and I wish I did that all the time, but I think that's what God, God wants us to be thinking of Scripture all the time. So when we approach things in the world, we come with a biblical mind. How should Christians think about transgenderism? How should Christians think about immigration? How should Christians think about abortion? I mean, how do we bring a Christian mind to bear? We're meditating on Scripture, and it's helping us think God's thoughts after So it says, we meditate day and night. Remember, Jesus was Satan. He quotes Scripture to Satan. Satan, he's 40 days, he's hungry, he's at his lowest place, and Satan comes to him, even quoting Scripture at him, and Jesus comes right back. He knows Scripture so well, and that's where the power was in his being able to, to go against Satan. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And our minds are being transformed regularly by Scripture. So spiritual discernment is deciphering the good and bad from culture. Everything in the culture is not bad, of course. There's, we're creating God's image. People come up with many good things. But we don't allow ourselves to get sucked into it, but we think about it from a biblical perspective. We say, this is good. I, I want to go along with it. No, this is really not healthy. It's not, it's not help us love God better. I'm not going to go there. So we're, we're constantly doing that. So let me just give you a couple examples before I move on. What does that look like practically? Three quick examples, okay? Number one, money. Money, money, money. Um, we live in a culture that is driven by consumerism, right? Um, you've got to buy things. We need more things. We're, advertisements are constantly coming at us that your life won't be full until you have this thing. And so I, I remember one time, this is back, this shows my age, I was in the 70s or the 80s, a long, long time ago. I don't remember, honestly, if it was the President of the United States or if it was somebody high up in the economics, I don't know where it was, it was in the newspaper, and the, the economy was in a bit of a funk, and this person just said, you guys, we need to get out of this thing, we all need to spin, spin, spin. Get out there and just buy something. I mean, it was said that crassly, and, and that kind of, like, now wait a minute, something is wrong about that, okay? Now, now the, the point is not um, socialism is better than capitalism. That's, if, the, if we were a socialistic country, there would be Christian things that would say to critique that as well. But the one danger of a kind of a focused consumerism is getting sucked into riches and money is where we find our identity. Um, so we, we look at that and we say, you know, I don't want to go there. And let me just give you one example that was really stood out to me as helping me see this. Uh, when I was uh, working at MIT with InterVarsity, there was a guy named David that I met with every week uh, in a discipleship sort of arrangement, although it was really mutual. He really cared for me as much as I did him. But we would meet every week, 9 o'clock in the morning, in this atrium, this huge building in, at MIT that was covered, but it was huge, like a big football field. And we would meet at 9 a.m. in these chairs, and we would share the Lord, we would pray together, we'd hold each other accountable. Great time. There was this big food court there that didn't open till 11. Everything was closed down until lunchtime at 11. So all these little um, containers of food were around, but it was all closed down. So 9 o'clock, he and I would go, and we would share our lives, and we'd pray together. 
And then one day, after we'd been doing this about two or three months, a little um, coffee cart started, came out of nowhere and was there in front of us. And so somebody started to sell coffee. It's from 7 in the morning till 11. And I said, oh, you know, Dave, let's have a cup of coffee when we So we started having coffee every time we met. And then soon this coffee cart started selling bagels and, and uh, uh, muffins and stuff. So we said, let's have a bagel. We'll be and so we did, and that was fine. That was good. Nothing wrong with that. And, you know, good, good use of money to feed yourselves while you're talking and stuff. Then one day that cart was either broken or the person didn't show up. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't working. And I remember very distinctly just saying, oh, I can't really meet with Dave without that coffee and muffin. I need that coffee and muffin. And it just hit me for two months before that was there, we got along fine. I didn't feel this need for a muffin. We were doing fine. But now it came, it was in front of me, and so I felt, now I need that every single week, and it's not there. And that's kind of a microcosm of, I think, the way consumerism works. It preys on your need. You need this, this thing, in order to feel satisfied or to be, be, have your identity stroked or whatever. And we need to be able to say, you know, man does not live by bread alone, as Jesus said to Satan. Things are good. Money's good. We can, we can buy them. Having a cup of coffee, nothing wrong with that. But just to be, be aware of how easily it sucks us into it. Whenever we travel, um, you know, we stop for gas on a long trip, and there's these little 7-Eleven uh, stores you go in, go use the bathroom, you know, and there's all these candy, stuff like that. And I just realized we tend to just buy something every single time. So I said, is it possible for us to get gas, use the bathroom, and just simply once not buy anything? Like, can we do that? Oh, of course we can do that. It was hard. It was hard. <laughs> and so, so there is this temptation of just being drawn into that constantly. Um, what is the Christian mindset here? Here's some, here's some verses just to remind ourselves of what Jesus says. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You cannot serve God and mammon. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then there's so much in scriptures about being generous, about being content with what you have. Okay, that's just one example. So, so we look at consumerism, and we try to bring our Christian mind, bathed in scripture, and we say, there's some good things here. Things are created by God, but I'm not going to allow myself to be consumed by that. I'm going to step back and meditate on scripture and say, say no. Second example could be just in the way we relate to people. Um, generally, just think, if God didn't exist... You wake up in the morning, you have your five senses, you're going to be here for 80 years, you're thinking about how to make your life work. You have friendships, but the tendency would be, I think, usually, to use people. Um, you give to people, but if life is centered around myself, I need you to care for me. And so I, I'll be your friend, but I need this from you. It's, I'll give, but you need to give back to me. There's not a trust that God's going to take care of me. I can just let go and love um, wildly because I don't know if God's there, so I have to use people in a different way. I think we see this in Washington all the time. You go to little clubs and people are looking at each other, how important they are, and are they going to help me advance or not? And just the way we treat people so often says something about our values. And as a Christian, we, we look at the way the world lives its life and we say, there's some things here that I appreciate, but... I'm not going to, that's the majority way of going, but I'm not going to go there. I'm going to, I meditate on scripture and I, I'm going to choose to have different values 
in the way I relate to people. Or, you know, again, what are some scriptures on that? Let me just read a few here. Um, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Love is patient and kind, not jealous or boastful. It's not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. He who would be greatest among you, let him be least of all. As we are allowing ourselves to be bathed by those thoughts, we, we approach relationships differently. And then what about enemies? When somebody does us wrong, I mean, it's the natural thing in our culture to get revenge. My rights were stomped on, so I'm going to get back at you somehow. Or nursing a grudge. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. Uh, somebody has your coat, give them your cloak as well. Pray for those who hurt you. Um, you know, what kind of a life is that? And so again, it's looking at the way people treat each other and saying, the calling of Jesus is something radically different. I'm not going to allow myself to get sucked into the way the world does it. I'm going to be willing to be different. And sometimes it means standing alone. Um, again, the scriptures are, are strong on, on loving your enemy. And then finally, this is the third example real quickly, is, um, is sex. Okay, um, Sex. Um, what could be more radical than a Christian view of sex from the way the world is? Really? Isn't that true? I mean, what does Christianity teach? One man, one woman, the only place you have sex in marriage. That's it. If, if you're before marriage, you're not to have any kind of sex at all with anybody. If you are attracted to the same sex, you should never have sex with that person ever. If you're married and you're attracted to somebody who you're not married to, you're supposed to ask Jesus to help you not lust after that person. I mean, the, the definition of what is good sex and what is right in sex is very narrow, according to the Bible. The world is very different. The world is moving fast in a different direction. Um, even if you look at some, I, I encourage all of us to, to look at some 1960s, 50s movies and, and just or read Jane Austen or read, just read different books. I'm not saying that they were better back then, but you can just see the contrast of what was considered normal. Things are very different today. And so it's like a stream that's just moving faster and faster. And, you know, you kind of just, I'm not going to really get involved. I'll just kind of stick my toe in. And you either kind of go with the stream or you stand back and stand against it. It's really hard to stand in the middle. And so I think just the whole thing with, with sexuality, we're saying, I delight in the way God has put things together. Not just, oh, I wish I could be like the world, um, you know, but I'm going to do what God wants. Okay, you know, darn, I wish, you know, how much fun they're having, you know. And rather than saying, if God has called us to sexual purity and holiness, it's, it's for our good. It, it's, it's the right place where to be. Um, and the question is, you know, do we really believe that? Um, I, I would ask you to, to challenge us all, just to show you how far our culture really has gone from even 30 or 40 years, just very quickly. Has there been one movie in the last 10 years? I, come up to me afterwards, tell me, because maybe I'm wrong. I mean, one movie in the last 10, maybe even 20 years, where a couple falls in love, they start to get romantic with each other, it starts to move towards the bedroom, and one of the two says, you know, I, I love you, I really care for you, but... I'm waiting until marriage, until I have sex. So if you don't mind, let's just not do it. You know, can you imagine one movie where that person isn't made to look weird or something, where it's actually seen as a positive thing? You would think 990 movies the other way. You can make one movie where that was valued. I thought when I saw Bridesmaids. Anybody see Bridesmaids? Anybody see it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I love that movie. That was really fun. But, um, you know, the, uh, the main woman who's the bridesmaid, 
falls in love with this policeman. Remember that? Kind of a blue-collar policeman guy. And he's kind of backward and kind of slow and kind of goofy, and, and she's kind of upper class, and yet they kind of fall in love. And, and then they kind of move to his apartment. And I think, you know, here's going to be an exception. They're just going to care for each other, and he's kind of old-fashioned. And you know, Sure enough, they end up in bed. That's what you expect. That's where that it always goes. So as a Christian, we need to say either we Christians are really weird, we're fundamentalists, we're prudes, we're backward, we don't know what is going on, or the culture is moving fast away from what's been normal. It's one or the other. And, and as Christians, we meditate on God's word. I think we need to say, you know, I think the culture is moving further away from where the normal part where God would have us to be. So before moving on, let me just simply say, you know, here's a suggestion. Um, I don't know if, if guys ever get together with your non-Christian friends or women and with, with the same sex and talk about um, experiences with dating and the opposite sex. And imagine they're doing that, and, and um, let's say you're women, okay? And a bunch of women are talking, and then one woman says, oh, man, I had this great sex the other night. And the other woman says, oh, you know, hey, how about you, Susie? You know, what's it been like for you? And you're a virgin, let's say. And Now, look, here's three different responses you could have. First two are not good. The third one is good, okay? Here, here's one response. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, you know, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed, but, uh, well, uh, I really have never had sex, and I, you know, I'm I'm still a good person. I mean, I I go to movies and I drink beer, and I, I'm, I'm normal. I, I'm cool, but I, I just I just have never had sex. You know, you can be embarrassed about. It, that's one thing. A second re- response could be um, sex with somebody that's not your, a, a believer, not, not a you're not married to them. I'm a Christian. I don't do that sort of thing. I love Jesus. I don't follow that. Either. Okay, <laughs> you can kind of do that. Okay. Um, and the third way, though, is. You're, you're loving the person, you're, you're being positive, you're saying, oh, you know, it's great to hear your stories. Like, you know, I, I, I'm, just, uh, <laughs> I'm just looking, for, you know, I really believe that God has given this wonderful gift of sex and hoping that one day if I get married that I'll really experience that with my husband. If it turns out I never get married, that's still okay. I'm sure there's something even better in heaven. And I'm just really going to, you know, give myself to the Lord. And I think he wants to keep sex special. Um, What's, what's for dessert? You know, you kind of change stuff. And so, uh, and, and I just, again, I think the person who delights in the law of the Lord is, is able to look at the way the world moves and just say, you know, um, I'm not against you. I don't hate you. But I've given myself to, to Jesus. He's given himself to me. And I want to respond. I want to be who I am. I want to be a follower of his. And, and I'm just, I just can't go there. But, but there's a, a grace about it. Okay, well, let me just finish up here. Um, So this whole first point is God's people are going to be radically and intentionally follow him in what we don't do and what we do do. We need to be aware of the culture, where it's going, aware of Scripture, and to make that contrast when we need to. The second thing is God's people and the world's people experience different consequences for their life. So let's look back at um, verse 3. Um, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked, his life's in the law of the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields his fruit in season, and his leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff which the wind drives away. So, and then it talks about at the end that the wicked will perish. And so the image here is the, the, the believer, the one who's following the Lord, who's seeking to delight in him, is like this sturdy oak tree that's got deep roots that are by the water and in the spring and the summer it's it's fruitful 
in the winter when it's rough, the weather's hard, it's stable, it's strong. It, there's a security, a stability about God's people that lasts over time. And this notion of chaff, it's like when they, in the agriculture back then when they were um, harvesting the food, there was the winnowing that process that would go on, that you would have all this material together and the grain would, would fall down and the, the chaff and the husk would, would blow away. And so you're left with the grain, but the, the lighter stuff just kind of blows away. And so he's saying the wicked are like that. The, the, there's a, a temporariness. There's a, a lack of solidity to, to, the non, to the, those who are not giving themselves to the Lord's way. And, you know, there's many examples we could use, but, I mean, uh, I think all of us know about Bill, Bill Cosby. And I love Bill Cosby's humor. I used to laugh a lot. You know, I used to watch the sitcoms. And, I mean, he has syndicated for, you know, families who watch it for many, many years. I remember one time watching him on the, the Kennedy Center getting an award about 10 years ago or so. And you, you pan the audience, and everybody had a smile on their face. Just, Bill Cosby, can't wait for a joke. And they were laughing. And I heard everywhere he went in a restaurant, people would just come to him for autographs and would, you know, love, tell us a joke. You know, I got a joke for you. You want to hear this one, you know, and so on. Um, and then we hear about his fall, about 30, 40 women saying that he drugged them and he'd had sex with them. And I saw him, you know, some of us did on, on just a few months ago on the television. And you watch his head droop and you see a brokenness about him. All that money and all of his life is now, everything he worked for is now, is now gone. And he's dying to that. And, you know, when he dies, that's going to be his legacy. And just, there's a temporariness about when you make the world, our five senses, our main focus, there's going to be a, a lightness to it that, that will be blown away. So let me just ask, but do we really believe that? I mean, we say that, that's what good Christians are supposed to do, but we know non-Christians who are successful, who are happy, right? I mean, isn't this thing blowing out of proportion a little bit? Let me just finish, but I think we need to see our, what we measure success by. If we measure success in physical, external kinds of ways, then yes, a lot of people are successful, even though they give, could care less about God or Christ. So, um, you know, they've got a lot of money, they've got a good job, they've got good prestige, a lot of people like them, they're very healthy, they've never been in the hospital, they, take, they go to the gym all the time, they live a long life. They are, quote, successful. And I think we can say that. But is that the measurement that we should use? Or is the measurement more, you know, to what degree are we loving the Lord our God and our neighbor as ourself? How are we deepening in that? How are we deepening in following God's will? How are we deepening in inculcating the virtues of faith, hope, and love? How are our relationships, the quality of our relationships, deepening over time? When you look back over your life, what determines success? And, you know, Paul was in prison for several years, and he was successful in, in a Christian understanding. Uh, uh, we have a friend uh, that is one of my grad students who is in jail. And I won't go into all the details, but David and I, my son and I have visited him a couple times. And he's in the federal penitentiary, and he's been there for 10 years. And he's, uh, he did some things before he was a Christian. He's since repented, and he's become a, a live Christian in jail. And he is so full of joy. I mean, I'm actually envious. I mean, every time I see him, I just say, I wish I could be more like Julio. And yet he's in jail. And, and so from the world's perspective, he's not successful, but he is prospering. And whatsoever he does, he prospers, the Scripture said. And Jesus himself, I mean, what an example of somebody who, by the world's standards, failed constantly. 
Even his three closest friends didn't quite understand him, and one of them uh, rejected him, um, blasphemed him. And then he dies this kind of a death. But then the father says at the end, well done, my, my good and faithful sir. You know, you accomplished the will that I sent you out to do. So there is something about prospering that is, um, when we understand the, the Lord's lens versus the world's lens, we see two different ways of understanding success. Now, the very final thing I will end with is another lens is the, the timeline lens. If life is just 80 years and you die, just think of that. All there is is 80 years, maybe 70 or 90 or 60 or something. I don't know, whatever. You know, 80 years. Um, and then, so you wake up in the morning. I'm, I'm 25. I got 55 more years. I'm 35 now. I only got 45. I'm 60 years old. I've only got 20 more years. If your whole life is around 80 years, it will shape the way you make decisions, the risks you take, kind of the whole way you see yourself. If we understand ourselves as living forever, 80 years is just a drop in the bucket. We are just barely beginning. The difference between a 60-year-old and a 20-year-old when it's compared to eternity is like nothing, right? It's like 0.001% versus 0.002%. I mean, you've got your whole life ahead of you. And I think if we see, the, the, the Puritans did this, um, Augustine was always big on, on seeing heaven. Our hope is the thing that drives us forward. And the martyrs would die when they were in their 30s, but you know, life is short, I'm going to be with God forever. It's, it's a different perspective on the world. And we're told here that the wicked will perish, but um, those who follow the Lord will live forever. So, um, brothers and sisters, I just encourage us all to follow the Lord, to, to do so with abandon, to, to be very aware of how the world lives its life, to be discerning, to watch TV with discernment. Um, Oz Guinness says his son, when he was 12 years old, he gave his son a quarter for every lie he saw in an advertisement. He called a game called Spot the Lie. It was a, it was a game. And so his son would, would quit, watch the advertisement and say, wait a minute, they're telling you if you do this, you'll be happy. Okay, quarter. You know, he was watching it. And the guy got really well. And so we need to be discerning where the culture is. We, we need to delight in the way that the Lord's calling us. And not because we have to, but because we want to. Okay, sorry for going over. Can I pray for us? And let's move on. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you have called us to follow you. Lord, you have created us. You've redeemed us. You've changed our nature. You've put the Holy Spirit inside of us. You've given us Jesus to forgive our sins and to make us new people. Uh, and Lord, we very much just want to be who we are, who, who we are in you. Lord, would you give us the, the faith, the, the courage, the grace to, to follow you, whatever the cost and Lord, we pray that those who don't know you, that we wouldn't have a holier-than-thou attitude, that we wouldn't look down our nose, but that we would just be one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, that we would just point people to Jesus, the reason for life. Thank you that we can delight in your law and commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.